Greetings, church family. It is good to see you guys. What a gift to be together. Welcome. Uh, the last Sunday of the year, what in church world is affectionately called Youth Pastor Sunday. Because no one comes the last Sunday of the year. So, and the pastor always wants off. So that's the week the youth pastor gets to preach. And I... You know, I spent a decade as a youth pastor, so I thought I'd just get a little nostalgic and come up and hang out with you guys today. So glad you guys could drag yourselves out of your eggnog-induced comas and come uh, worship Jesus with us uh, this afternoon. It is such a blessing to be together. We are going to do something a little unique this year. This is the last Sunday of what has been a really strange and hard year, and so uh, I'm just I'm just excited for what we're going to do. We're we're hitting pause on our series in Acts uh, for a few weeks uh, tonight. Or actually, n- next week we're going to start a short series on discipleship and pastoral care. I think is going to be really good. We're going to spend the month of January talking about this idea of care or what the Bible calls ministry and what that means for us as a church and and how uh, that speaks into our life together as a church. I think you guys will be blessed by that. Uh, But tonight, we're going to talk about something that I am incredibly passionate about. This is um, a theological theme that I come back to um, all the time in my own life, uh, in my ministry, and, and Lord willing, in our, in our life together as a church here at Red Tree. So to, tonight we're going to talk about this idea of, of freedom in Christ and what that means uh, for you and me, especially uh, f- for those of us who've maybe been uh, in church world a long time, maybe have been pursuing faith and pursuing Christ a long time. I think it's really easy to take a phrase, a concept, a theological idea like the freedom of Christ and think that's this thing for non-believers who need to become believers. That, that's, what that, that's what that relates to. But, but I want to challenge us on that tonight and reflect on what, what this, this beautiful scriptural truth, the freedom in Christ, what that means in the everyday life of the believer and the life of the church. So turn with me to John chapter 8. It'll be our text tonight. John chapter 8. And I'm going to read for us starting in verse 31. So the 31st verse of the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John tells us this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but you now seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. 
And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I, I came not of my own accord, but, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yeah, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Or, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. And this, beloved of Jesus, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me again. Father, we ask tonight, humbly, as we, as we take a few minutes to engage your word, to, to talk about this idea of this, this freedom that you have bought for us with, with, with your work here on earth, with the, this is the power, the beauty of the gospel. God, we ask that you would be present we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpreter, that you would be the one who illuminates the scriptures, that you would be the one who convicts us and teaches us. We ask that you'd be glorified by the way our hearts engage your truth tonight, that we would be humble and present. We would hear from you. We would respond accordingly. God, ultimately, we just ask that tonight, as we leave this space, that we will have spent our evening with you. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen. So, that's a long one. That's a good one, right? There's a lot, lot going on in that story. So, so here's, here's what I'd kind of like to do with our story tonight. There's so much to this, but, but, but I think one of the problems is that the Gospel of John's telling of things can often, if we're honest, like, and it's totally cool for you just to admit this, Oftentimes, John's telling of a story is just confusing 
to us as modern readers. The way he structures sentences, the way he moves from scene to scene, the way people speak, it's just easy to kind of kind of lose the train of thought with John. He's very, very wordy and very expressive. And so I'm going to do my best tonight kind of to take us back through this story and take us back through Jesus's teaching and kind of the, the back and forth with him and his audience here and, and hopefully kind of help us get at the, the core of what Jesus is saying and what that means for us here and now. I think it's going to lead us to Paul's teaching to the Ephesians, and probably to the Galatians also, and we'll end out our time with some reflection and communion. Sound like a plan? Awesome. So what's actually going on in this story? If you're, if you're not super familiar with the narrative of the Gospel of John, we're actually picking up in the middle of a larger story that John is telling. So, so we're smack dab in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's been traveling around Galilee, kind of the northern part of Judea, and made his way down to Jerusalem in the southern part a couple times. And his ministry is starting to just kind of get going. It's starting to get momentum. He's starting to be known. And immediately his ministry is followed by all sorts of controversy. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's had legitimate death threats. He has people who, who want to kill him because of the way he preaches and the way he teaches and the, the signs he's showing. And in the midst of that, as things are amping up, the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles comes up on the Jewish calendar. Now, if you don't know anything about Jewish holidays, that's totally fine. The, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of these feasts where uh, some of the Jewish feast days, the men of all of Israel were expected to show up at Jerusalem and do some stuff. And the Feast of Tabernacles is one of these. By the way, what they were expected to do was show up at Jerusalem and set up tents and sleep in them for a week, uh, which is just a really cool holiday. Just God said, you need to go camping for a week. Just trust me. You all need to chill out. Go camping for a week. Uh, but but that's, that's the Feast of Booths. And, and this, this could not come at a worse time for Jesus. This is not a good time for Jesus to show up in Jerusalem at the temple when there are religious leaders and people actively seeking to kill him. For a rabbi to show up and teach in public in a big, huge setting like this would not be good. To the point that his family says, hey, you probably shouldn't go. You'll probably get killed or arrested. And Jesus kind of goes, yeah, you know what? You're right. I won't. And so the scene plays out where Jesus' family and his followers go to Jerusalem for the feast without him. But a couple days later, and I just, I love this about Jesus. And the text doesn't tell us if he was antsy or he planned it or what. But I just love this, that Jesus is like, yeah, you know what? You're right. This is, it's, it's too much. It's too heavy right now. You guys go on without me. And like two days later, he's just like, nah, I'm going. And so he goes and he goes to Jerusalem a couple days into the feast. And of course, being Jesus, the first thing he does is he walks into the temple and gets a crowd around him and just starts teaching. Just being him, doing his thing, the exact thing that everyone around him said, hey, you probably shouldn't do this or you'll get killed and arrested. But Jesus shows up at the temple and begins to teach. And just like his teaching always does, Jesus' teaching divides the room. Because Jesus preaches this, this beautiful gospel truth that, that God is who he says he is, and he's doing something new, and he's calling his people unto himself, and, and, it, and it pushes at some of the, the discomforts and idolatries and, and broken aspects of the Jewish practice of faith. 
And as it cuts through this audience, the majority of people turn away from it immediately and just go, this is too much. You are crazy. You're probably a heretic, and I don't want to be around when they finally arrest you. But some of the people believe him. Some of them believe him. Now, in in the Gospel of John, that word is really important. In fact, the Gospel of John is structured around John the Apostle, this, this pastor, around his kind of theological understanding of the idea of belief. When John uses the word believe, he's not talking about the word the way we use it in English. He's not talking about just kind of this idea of intellectual assent, right? I believe something, therefore intellectually I've decided that that thing corresponds to reality. I intellectually ascend to the truth of whatever the thing I believe in. That's that's not what John is saying here. Not, Not that that's not included in it, but for John, or to use the theological term, Johannian belief, for John... Belief is much more than intellectual assent. Belief has to do with with wrapping yourself up in something, embodying something, becoming something. To say that that I, I believe in the message of Jesus is to say, I want this thing just totally tangled up and intermingled with my heart and my soul and my mind. I want my life to look like this thing. Belief is this all in, all of life, body, mind, and soul experience for John. It's a big deal, the way he uses the term. Which, by the way, if you think about some of the more famous passages you know in John, they always center around belief. Think John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. When John uses that word belief, he's talking about being all in. And it tells us right before this text picks up that some of the people, some of the crowd were starting to believe Jesus. They're hearing his message. Something is striking home. Something is grabbing a hold of them in a way that that grabs a hold of their hearts. And and this crowd, or part of it at least, is starting to go, "I, I think there's something to this rabbi Jesus. And that's where our text picks up. Jesus turns to this group of people. Everyone else has rejected him. He's like, okay, fine. That's fine. You do you. But you guys, listen up. And then he does this thing that is just wild. He takes these, these, this brand new audience, these people who have this very fledgling belief with them, and he just pushes that fledgling belief absolutely to its edge. This is, this is mama bird looking at baby bird going, time to fly, boop and just pushing them out of the nest, Jesus puts pressure on this group. This group that he's just met, who's just starting to engage his message, right? Like, you, you think about if I, I mean, if I was teaching, like, a missiology class or something, and Jesus was my student, I'd probably want to see him after class for a stunt like this. Like, this is not the way we would probably tell someone uh, to, to push people into further discipleship. But luckily, I wasn't Jesus' missiology teacher. Uh, and, and, and he grabs this group and just pushes them. And this, this whole text is almost him, almost him antagonizing this group of people who are actually starting to engage the truth of his teaching. So he starts out with this phrase that's probably pretty famous to us. It's one of the more, more famous lines in John. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I love that line. And we're going we're to come back to that. 
But I want to set this up because this is the beginning of Jesus drilling into this group of people. And in this short little statement, he tells us three things that are going to be really important. The first, one he, he, the first thing he tells us in this is that the truth is knowable. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is not like some like, this is not some existential thing. What even is truth? That's not what we're getting at here. The way Jesus is using the word know actually is, is in a relational sense. What he's saying is that you can know the truth the way you know your friends. You can have intimacy with the truth. Now that in and of itself is a weird statement. <laughs> That's a weird statement. But, but, but hold on to that. Keep that one in your back pocket because that's how he leads off the pressure he's putting on these new believers or these maybe fledgling or maybe still deciding crowd. So he says, you can, the truth is knowable. And inferred in that, and the way Jesus says this is, and you guys don't know the truth currently. <laughs> you can, you don't right now, which is pretty intense. Hold on to those two ideas. Because we're actually going to wrap the sermon, this whole teaching, back to those ideas. But put those in your back pocket for a minute. Because this third thing that Jesus says in this first statement, this is what his crowd actually latches on to. He says, you are not free. Right? Because he says, you can know the truth. And when you do, the truth will set you free. So the implication is, you don't know the truth right now, and you're not free right now. And his crowd catches a hold of this. This upsets them, right? This is where the conversation turns. They immediately grab a hold of this idea because this is weird, right? But the Jewish people, they're very sensitive to this idea of freedom. And we might miss that on just kind of a, a quick look, but, but think about this for a moment, right? They're Jewish. Their whole cultural identity is the truth that God supernaturally freed them from bondage and slavery in Egypt through the Exodus. The rabbis of Jesus' day, they, 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 would, they would name the patriarchs and, and the monarchs of Israel. They, they would do this thing where they would speak through the history of Israel, you know, the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would speak through the patriarchs and the monarchs. And then they would say boldly, we, as God's people, as the Jews, we are the children of kings in reference to, to, to who came before them. Now, Ignore the plain, unavoidable fact that the Jewish people at the time when Jesus is saying this were actively conquered by the oppressive Roman Empire. They were most certainly not free in any real political or social sense. But, and this is weird, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, the Jewish people saw themselves as free. And their freedom, their freedom was deeply important to their cultural and spiritual identity. I can't, you know, I can't think of any modern cultures that, that are obsessed with freedom and say that's somehow inherent in their cultural identity as a country. I don't know, maybe there are some around the United States. But uh, you guys, I know that's a weird thing for us to think about, but this is really wired into the Jewish people. 
We are free. God freed us. That's, that's, that's who we are. These ancient Jews really cared about this idea. So Jesus brilliantly pokes at it, pushes and prods on it. And they're upset with this. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of kings. We've never been enslaved. Again, this is blatantly wrong. (laughs) They are conquered by the Roman Empire. They are slaves to the will of the Roman emperor, which they will see over and over through their history in in this period of history. You see... And and, and by the way, this is why Jesus pokes at this, because this is part of, and I think the brilliant part of Jesus' teaching, just as the, the Jewish people ignored the present reality of their societal oppression to state that they were free, Jesus was about to show them that in spite of their religious identity, they lived in spiritual bondage. This people lived in obvious societal bondage, and yet somehow could get over the mental dissonance to say, we are free and have never been enslaved. And Jesus is about to use that really sensitive part of their cultural identity to let them know exactly where they stand spiritually and what their religion has done for them. Jesus says this, we we get this line, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I mean, boom. We could just stop there for a moment, right? If you practice sin, you are enslaved to it. I feel like we need to let that sit. Because that's the heavy kind of truth. But if we're honest... It's just uncomfortable to talk about. And, and it's why Jesus opens up by poking at these, his Jewish friends, his new, his new audience, about the fact that they're not really free. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's the same thing. Ladies didn't want to talk about the fact that Rome was there because that messed with their cultural understanding. Just like many of them and many of us We just don't like to talk about the truth that we know sin entangles and enslaves because that messes with our spiritual identity. We don't want to, we don't want to go there, right? But Jesus does. Sin enslaves you. We all know the truth of that statement in our heart of hearts. And yet how many of us, how how many times do I, like speaking confessionally to you, church, how many times do we live like ancient Jews proclaiming our free status while living under the thumb of the Romans? Sin enslaves you. If you pursue it and practice it, it will be your master, period. Period. Sin poisons hearts. It takes you and takes authority over you and takes over your life and parts of your life that you don't want to give away. And Jesus makes this amazing analogy. 
He talks about slavery kind of in their day and culture. A slave, even, even one with a relatively good life, is not a member of the family. They have no control over their future. They can be sold at any time. If the master dies, they get no inheritance. They will likely be auctioned off. A slave is not part of the family. But Jesus, in this weird kind of mixed metaphor thing, adds this amazing image. If the son sets them free in that moment, well, they don't go to auction. They're free. They're free indeed. Jesus is, is bringing these two ideas together. Look, if you practice sin, you're a slave to sin, and slaves are not members of the family, period. They're not. But the Son can set you free. Now, this whole familial language, it's weird for us, right? But this, is, this whole idea of family ties, really important for the Jewish understanding of their spirituality, their connection to the patriarchs, their connection to the family history. So for Jesus to say, you know, like, slaves aren't really members of the family. This is, this is poking even further at these fledgling believers who are engaging Jesus' teaching. And now Jesus gets into this this sort of sparring match with these people. Remember, many in the Jewish community wanted to actively, like they wanted to kill Jesus. And here he moves like deep into their religious and spiritual blindness. Part of their identity is this familial identity. They are children of Abraham, right? But Jesus cries foul. He says, you may be offspring of, of Abraham. You may share genetic code with Abraham, but if you were Abraham's kids, you would act like him. You would honor God. You wouldn't be plotting murder. That's not a very Abraham thing to do. You would follow God's son, Jesus. You may be related to to Abraham, but your lives look much more like Satan himself than they do like Abraham. Oof. So Jesus looks at these people who who wrap up their spiritual and cultural identity in the idea that we are free and we are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're slaves and you're children of Satan. Anyway, welcome to my TED Talk. (laughs) Oh, man. You can imagine, this is pretty upsetting to the crowd. They begin to throw insults. They call him a Samaritan. This is, by the way, not to get too deep into it, this is essentially just a racial slur that has like blasphemy mixed into it. It's like a double whammy. They call him a Samaritan, and then they say that he's demon-possessed. The two worst things, I guess, they could think of. And what what their essential argument boils down to is something to the effect of, well, what do you know about Abraham anyway? You think we're not like Abraham? How do you know we're not like Abraham? Maybe he did plot to kill people. I absolutely love this part. Jesus, Jesus' answer to this crowd, in the temple, in the middle of the feast week, while they're already plotting to kill him, is, look, when I met Abraham, he was rejoicing, not plotting murder, so I'm pretty confident you're nothing like him. That's such... You have to know, that sounds crazy, right? Abraham lived thousands of years before this moment. 
So for everyone standing there, Jesus' response sounds crazy enough to not be that far off from the insults they're throwing at him. And so their response is, dude, you're not even 50 years old. How did you meet Abraham? What are you talking about? And then Jesus, and it has, having, having, by the way, perfectly controlled this conversation to bring it to this point, Jesus wraps this entire thing back around to the very first thing he told to these guys. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And everyone in that space knew exactly what that meant. Jesus was saying, I am God. That's how I know. That's how I know you're not like Abraham. Because I am God. And I was there with him, and I was there before him, and I'm here now, and you're nothing like him. And they don't like that. (laughs) Their response is to pick up stones to kill him right then and there for speaking these blasphemies. Jesus is directly connecting himself to the person of God. You want to talk about bold. I want to go back to, this really seems like a bad evangelism strategy. This is not what I would recommend. I've been talking to you a little bit about the gospel. It seems like you're kind of interested and open to it. Yeah, I actually think I am. Cool. Well, anyway, you are a son of Satan and a slave to sin. And uh, Jesus is God. So you want to finish this thing out? That's, uh, that's wild to go that intense that fast. But that's how Jesus does this, which is brilliant. Jesus is far wiser, right, than any, any model of evangelism I might come up with, which is amazing. He has this super important reason for why he, he does this with this group. And I think it's actually really important for us today just as much as it was for them at that point. You see, these folk needed to be confronted with the reality of how blind they were to their own death. I want you to hear that. They needed to be confronted with how blind they were to their own death. They were incredibly comfortable in their cultural and religious identity, and they were blind to their real spiritual state. They had found a slot that worked. They knew who they were, and they knew what that said about the world, and they knew what they thought about God, and all of it just kind of worked. And it doesn't matter if it corresponds to reality, because it's all just kind of working. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not good enough. That's not real. That's not the truth. It's not the truth. To quote David Brainerd, the the great awakening missionary to North America, they needed to be awakened to the concern for the mortal peril of their souls. Because sin enslaves. And Satan loves, loves nothing more than to encourage us toward enslavement. In this fallen world, this is the natural state of humanity. 
Because of the reality of sin and the reality of the curse, enslaved to the curse of sin, being an enemy of God, this, this is the natural bent of the human soul. I know that that is like brutal and kind of intense to say, but I want you guys to hear that. Our cursed selves are bent toward this state and they're bent towards blindness about this state. You and I have to acknowledge the truth that our hearts desire to bring us back to this state. Our hearts are bent toward it. I've heard the analogy used before of a car that's out of alignment. You guys ever had this happen or do you have nice cars? When your car is out of alignment and you drive down the highway, if you let go of the wheel, it does this. You have to hold against the bad alignment to keep it going in a straight line. Our hearts are like that. We are bent toward the curse. Our natural inclination is to move away from God and toward enslavement to sin. We are almost magnetically drawn to enslavement to sin. Paul said it this way to the Ephesian church. You were dead in your trespasses in sin, in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. That's a code word for Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature, Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Because our natural bent is toward enslavement and death. All of us, you and me, the most righteous and godly person you know in this life. Whether that's your disciple or your Sunday school teacher or a pastor, I know it's not me, don't worry, you don't have to go around that the most righteous, godly person you know in their heart of hearts is bent toward sin. It is so easy to be enslaved to sin. It is so easy to live as a child of Satan, to use the term that Jesus used. We, just like these ancient Jews, can live fully into this life of death. And all the while, all the while, blindly convince ourselves that we are good, holy, righteous people. Totally blind to the reality of our state. Now, I have to pause here. I think this is important. Because I know that as I'm talking about this, there's a couple mental things happening that I want to address. I know that some of you hear this and go, That's intense. I'm glad Pastor Sam is preaching on that sin for all those sinners who aren't saved yet. But me, I'm good. I have prayed the prayer, walked the aisle, got the dip, and I have my golden ticket to heaven. And so this sermon is not for me. And I know some of you hear this and go, oh shoot, I thought I had the golden ticket. And I do all that stuff. I do have the dip and the the whole thing. But I also sin. So is he saying I'm like, I'm not actually a Christian? 
and, 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 and it's, it's bringing up these like doubts and anxieties in you. I want to encourage you guys, both of you guys, I'm going to say you're in the same category on this. If you hear this message about this, this scriptural teaching from our Messiah, our King, about the reality of sin, about the temptation to enslavement, about the power of sin to capture the human heart and human mind. And your first go-to is either, well, this isn't about me, or this is actually about something else, about whether or not my salvation is secure. You are being distracted. Set that aside. Set that aside. You go, well, this, but this is making, this is bringing up real doubts in me. I've got to deal with these doubts. Sure, fine. We can deal with those doubts later. That's not the point of this text. It's not the point of this teaching. And, 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 and don't, don't deceive yourself by being distracted away from the plain teaching that Jesus is handing us. And that's this. Your heart is bent toward enslavement to sin. Regardless of your estate. Until you enter into eternity and are made completely perfect in the presence of God, you will have a heart within you that is bent toward enslavement to sin. Whether you've already received Christ or not. Whether you have doubts and struggle with the security of your salvation or not. Regardless of those things, you have a broken, cursed heart within you. Your heart is deceitful. It longs to see you enslaved. If you are not in Christ, then it longs to see you remain not in Christ, that you might come face to face against the wrath of a holy and righteous God with no one to cover you and no advocate to speak for you. And if you are in Christ, it desires that you would be so caught up in sin as to hand away your fruitfulness for ministry. And that you might be one who enters into the kingdom, as Paul says, by the skin of your teeth as one escaping a house on fire. Both of those are terrible things. One is very obviously worse. Don't distract yourself and miss the plain teaching of our Lord. Your heart longs to be enslaved to sin. And you must guard against it. And you must fight it. And you must draw that into the light. And you must fight against that. Which is why Jesus starts and ends the teaching the way he does. Because the truth is, you are bent towards sin. And you long for it. But, but, praise be to God. Praise be to God that God knows this and God has mercy. Paul continued that same passage that is read to the Ephesian church by saying this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Beloved of Jesus, God intervenes on our helpless estate. 
This is why Jesus engages his audience so intensely. They have to be hit over the head with this truth. They are enslaved to sin. They are living as children of Satan. And Jesus is God. Because, go back to what Jesus initially said. You can know the truth and the truth will set you free. You can know the truth and the truth will set you free. Remember, Jesus is talking about more than intellectual ascent. He's talking about relationship and intimacy. What does it mean to know the truth? To have a relationship with the truth? What does that mean? You can know the truth and the truth will set you free. Beloved of Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, our King and our God, is the truth. He is our God. He is our King. His grace, His work, His forgiveness, knowing Him sets us free. Sets us free. It breaks the chains of bondage. Jesus said Himself, He has come to set the captives free. Paul said later to the church of the Galatians, it is for for freedom that Christ has set us free. The absolute root of the gospel story is that Jesus loves you so much, He wants to set you free. Beloved, sin enslaves, but Jesus frees. Sin captures, but Jesus sets us free. Your sweet Jesus, our King, our Messiah, he longs for you to be free from sin and death. He offers forgiveness from sin. He he will wash you clean. He will give you life eternal with him. He will free you from the reign of Satan and deliver you to his internal kingdom. He will give you heaven then, but he also longs for you to have freedom now. Christ frees us from the power of sin and death. Beloved, hear this. You can have freedom from the enslavement of sin. I know, I know, because we talk, that a lot of us struggle with compulsive and addictive behaviors and sins. And I know that if that's you, you hear me say something like this, and you immediately feel that like weird doubt and cynicism start stirring in your gut. I mean, people don't really change like that. Those things just, they just stick with you. You may get freedom with Christ in heaven then, but for now you'll just always struggle with A, B, C, fill in the blank, whatever. Beloved, just want to speak against that. It's not true. If that's true, then our Jesus is a liar. Jesus sets captives free. Jesus frees us from the power of sin, beloved. The truth will set you free, and you can know the truth. If you are his disciple, you can know him. It is for freedom that you've been set free. If you are in this space, and you don't experience the freedom of Christ, 
in your life, and I mean this, please, 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 please bring this into the light. Share it with Christ and share it with your pastors and share it with your community. I want to be in that with you. Because Christ longs for you to have freedom and life here and now. And yeah, it's intense. And yeah, it's a struggle. And yeah, you may need to do a lot of things that are hard and painful and it may take a long time. But beloved, you are the beloved of Jesus. He cares for you. He loves you. He, He made a way for you. From death to life. Don't go, don't go chasing back after your enslavement. And Jesus broke those chains and he unlocked those shackles. Don't try them back on. They're just as uncomfortable as they were, I promise. I promise you. Your Savior longs for you to live in life and freedom. Life abundant, life with Him. He bought your life on the cross. And He gives us a church and He gives us a family to fight together, to be with Him together, to draw these things into the light, to shine the light of the truth of the gospel on the wretchedness that is sin and is our hearts and is our enslavement. Because the gospel sets free and destroys those things. Beloved of Jesus, let us, let us live in the real gospel freedom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And here's what I'm going to do for us. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I want to encourage you guys to take a minute to be in this prayer with me. When I'm done praying, they're going to sing a song over you guys, and I'd encourage you to engage with Christ in the way you need to for the next couple of minutes. But, but here's what I want you to reflect on. As I pray and as they sing, I want you to do your best to look at your own heart with sobriety. To, to, to look at your own heart and your own actions and your own desires with just honesty. There's, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no pressure to go, I promise we really are free. Ignore the Romans in the background. There's no, there's no reason to do that. We are all in this boat together with wretched hearts that desire sin and enslavement. We're all in it together. So let's, let's look at our own hearts, our own self, with just, just some, some honesty and sobriety for a moment. And bring that to Christ. See what he says. Bring that to him honestly in your prayers for the next few minutes. And just see what he says. And beloved, he, hear me. When I say this, if you, oh, if you feel trapped, if you feel, if you, if you give that sober look at your heart and what you see scares you, please come talk to someone. Grab one of your pastors. Grab one of our GC leaders. Grab one of our staff. We'd, we'd love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to help you find life in Christ. If you've never done that, I'd love to help you find life in Christ. If you're stuck in something and it's hindering you from from living in to your fruitfulness, to, to what God has called you to, we would love 
to fight for freedom with you. So pray with me, church, and then let this song be sung over you, and that'll be how we bring things around tonight. Jesus, you are so good to us. So much better than we deserve. That our hearts are so ugly. Lord, if the, if the depths of my person was put on display, not only would they not trust me to be their pastor, they probably wouldn't like me as a person. And I know that's true for all of us. God, I don't know why you love us like you do. But you do. I thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for your love and your pursuit and your consistency and your heart for us. Lord, for those of us in this space tonight, are living with our eyes closed, blinded to the truth, blind to the mortal peril of our souls. God, I pray that you would give us the gift of pricking us hard enough to open our eyes. You would give us the gift of upsetting us enough to give us sober eyes to see our real standing. Then we might come to you for life that we might come to you for forgiveness, that we might come to you for freedom. Jesus, you are so good. We love you. We pray these things in your name.